The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. The president's lawyer takes the fifth. It's Thursday, April 26, 2018. Thank you very much for your time and for supporting this independent news through the links for my sponsors, including audible.com and the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The Treasury Department has announced the U.S. is easing sanctions on a Russian aluminum company that's closely tied to Vladimir Putin. In other words, nothing has changed in the past week when it comes to Trump's coddling of a hostile government that attacked the U.S. political system. Sanctions were placed on Russia for invading Ukraine and taking Crimea. More sanctions were added for U.S. election interference before Trump was president. At least since the Republican Presidential Nominating Convention of 2016, Team Trump has worked to remove those sanctions and to block or delay new ones. And now, the Trump administration has lifted sanctions that closely affect the Russian president, a man Trump once said he hoped would, quote, be his new best friend. That was in 2013. To this day, Trump has nothing bad to say about the man who led the cyber attack on the U.S. Nothing to say and no punishment to give. All of this, while the Trump campaign looks increasingly guilty of conspiring with Russia to throw the 2016 election. Meanwhile, I never would have imagined that as a reporter or news anchor, I would deliver the headline you heard at the top. Last night, Donald Trump's personal lawyer told a federal judge he plans to plead the Fifth Amendment in the Stormy Daniels case. Cohen has also asked the judge to put that case on hold because of, quote, as Cohen's lawyer explained to the judge, ongoing criminal investigation by the FBI and U.S. attorneys. Lawyers for Cohen and Trump are also asking the judge to let them and their clients review the material the FBI seized in last week's raid on Cohen's home, office, and hotel room. They seized his phones and computers and files, anything that might pertain to that $130,000 hush money payment to Daniels by Cohen that also appears to be an illegal unreported campaign contribution. In the words of Stormy Daniels' lawyer, this is a stunning development. Never before in our nation's history has the attorney for a sitting president invoked the Fifth Amendment in connection with issues surrounding the president. Trump himself has taken the Fifth 97 times to questions in a divorce deposition, but at a campaign rally told his supporters, the mob takes the Fifth. If you're innocent, why are you taking the Fifth Amendment? We cannot know yet precisely why Michael Cohen's pleading the fifth, but the way events unfold in the Trump era, we will undoubtedly find out. Lawyer Michael Cohen has raised millions of campaign dollars for Donald Trump over the years. He's scouted business deals for Trump. He's handled situations, both personal and business. Michael Cohen has admired Donald Trump since high school and told Fox News, I will do anything to protect Mr. Trump. I'm the guy who would take a bullet for the president. I'd never walk away. And Cohen has been faithful, praising Trump on TV and Twitter, even though Trump's mostly ignored Cohen. It appears they've conversed only a couple of times since Trump took office. Trump had avoided using Cohen as part of his campaign despite the millions of dollars Cohen had raised for Trump and despite the other work Cohen had done on behalf of the image of Trump the candidate. And despite repeated Trump insults and ignoring and threats of firing Cohen, Cohen has remained true. And then came the raid on Cohen's files filled with information about Donald Trump. 
The man who would take a bullet for Trump is now in the crosshairs and thinking perhaps about his wife and two kids and his ability to afford the kind of legal help he'd need to do battle with federal prosecutors who now have all his files and emails. Heck, it'd just be easier for Cohen to flip for the prosecution and testify against the man for whom he had sworn to protect from harm. And in this past week, Cohen's given us reason to believe he will flip in the Russia probe. On the advice of his lawyers, Michael Cohen has now dropped his lawsuits against Fusion GPS, the company that commissioned that damning steel dossier, and against BuzzFeed, the news outlet that published those spy memos about Trump and Russia. Had Cohen proceeded with his lawsuits against Fusion and BuzzFeed, he would have been forced to turn over documents proving he had not traveled to Prague to meet with Russians, as the steel dossier claims. There's new evidence that he did. That trip to Prague is already of great interest to the Mueller investigation that's perhaps willing to go easy on Cohen if he were to prove helpful. But Donald Trump says Cohen won't flip, that he won't cave for the federal prosecutors now picking apart Cohen's business deals. Trump does that in his own way, of course, attacking the bringers of that bad news on Twitter, complete with misspellings. Quote, the New York Times and a third-rate reporter named Maggie Haberman, known as a crooked H flunky who I don't speak to and have nothing to do with, are going out of their way to destroy Michael Cohen and his relationship with me in the hope that he will flip. Trump went on to attack the Times, quoting again, non-existent sources and a drunk-slash-drugged-up loser who hates Michael. The White House won't rule out a presidential pardon for Michael Cohen. Trump has finally found more lawyers to defend him in the Russia investigation, three former federal prosecutors, including Rudy Giuliani. Giuliani says, I'm doing it because I hope we can negotiate an end to this. Trump agrees, saying in a statement that Giuliani, quote, wants to get this matter quickly resolved. Giuliani told a reporter nearly a week ago he'd like to have it wrapped up by one week from today. Giuliani's reopened the negotiations with Robert Mueller about a presidential interview with the Mueller investigation. Trump, once eager for that sit-down, has more recently rejected the idea and continues to reject it, according to Rudy Giuliani. As a former federal prosecutor, Giuliani and two more of his kind believe they know how to stop the Mueller probe, even though Giuliani says he believes Mueller should be allowed to do his work. Giuliani's going in as a short-timer, mainly as an attack dog for Trump, who can get on the mainstream TV networks as well as Fox News. The Giuliani bunch now joins the mustachioed Ty Cobb and Fox News regular Jay Sekulow in defending Trump in the Russia scandal. But there's already a cloud of skepticism forming over Rudy Giuliani, since it was Giuliani who told Fox News two weeks before the election that FBI Director James Comey was about to reopen the Clinton email investigation after finding new emails. How did he know? Because days later, Comey made that exact announcement. Someone in the FBI had tipped off Rudy Giuliani. Comey says he ordered that the leak be investigated, but does not know the status of that investigation since he was fired before it could be completed. As for the official memos and notes of James Comey, Republicans were threatening to make them public, convinced those memos would prove Trump had not obstructed justice or colluded with Russia. Fine by me, Comey responded. Trump claims the Comey memos do clear his name, even though they do not. What the memos did was confirm what Comey's been saying in his book and in interviews and in his congressional testimony. His story has been consistent throughout, nearly word for word. What the memos do confirm is that in their meeting, Trump was more concerned with the hooker allegations and about what his wife would think about it 
than about Russian meddling in our social media and election process. We have learned that Comey went to Trump about those allegations as a heads up, since the FBI had already found some of the Steele dossier's contents to be true, corroborated by three different U.S. intelligence agencies. It was in that conversation on February 8, 2016, that Trump revealed that Putin had told him, we have some of the most beautiful hookers in the world. But it was the day before that Trump had repeated that he had never met Putin. Trump also told Comey he had actually never spent a whole night in Russia during the 2013 Miss Universe pageant. Bloomberg News, using flight records and social media posts, reports that Trump flew to Russia on a Friday and left by air on Sunday for that pageant. NBC News reports Trump did spend at least one night in Moscow. Trump's weekend had also been timelined earlier in the book Russian Roulette by reporters David Korn and Michael Isakoff. Trump himself tweeted at the time he had, quote, a great weekend in Moscow. So it wasn't zero nights in Moscow. It was at least one night. It might have been two. And that confirms yet another part of the much maligned Steele dossier boosting its credibility. Trump's bodyguard, Keith Schiller, had already testified that during that trip, a Russian offered to send five women to Trump's hotel room. Former FBI Director James Comey says the fact that Trump lied to him about that night or those nights in Moscow is seen by prosecutors as a reflection of guilt. This past week, as Comey's book cruised to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, Trump tweeted that he wanted Comey jailed. In that infamous White House meeting, we learned that Trump also asked Comey to go after journalists who publish leaks. Quoting Comey at a book signing, What we face today is a situation where lying has become so normal that when I wake up in the morning and I see the President of the United States has called for my imprisonment, I actually shrug. And then I stop myself and say, wait a minute. That shrug means you're becoming numb to something that is not normal, not okay. The nation continues to watch to see if Trump will fire Robert Mueller's boss, Rod Rosenstein, as he has reportedly considered. So real is this concern. We've learned this week that Attorney General Jeff Sessions warned the White House he might have to resign if Trump fires Rosenstein. Sessions made that call to White House Counsel Don McGahn a week earlier when Trump was tweeting angrily about Rosenstein. To try to keep Trump's favor, Sessions is also so far refusing to recuse himself from the investigation of Trump lawyer Michael Cohen, despite the overlap with the Russia investigation from which Sessions is recused. But we digress. Over a third of a million Americans have signed up to march in protest if Robert Mueller is fired. In Pittsburgh, plainclothes police detectives have been ordered to start bringing their uniforms to work every day and their riot gear and to keep bringing them to work until, quote, further notice. 2,300 people have signed up to take part in Pittsburgh's entry in a nationwide nobody-is-above-the-law march. The Pittsburgh Police Bureau is concerned there may be huge protests downtown if Bob Mueller is fired. Now more than 800 Justice Department employees have signed a letter asking Congress to protect the jobs of both Rosenstein and Mueller. Mitch McConnell has said he won't allow such a bill to be put up for a vote, and congressional Republicans continue to bully Rosenstein, demanding documents and threatening Rosenstein with impeachment or contempt of Congress charges if he doesn't comply. The encouraging news for those concerned about all this is that Mitch McConnell may not be able to stop a bill to protect Bob Mueller. 
But within 24 hours of McConnell declaring he's the decider when it comes to bills before Congress, he failed to wrangle his own people on a bill to update the Coast Guard or the one to confirm a new guy as the head of NASA. With Vice President Pence in Florida to meet with Japan's Prime Minister, Pence couldn't be in Washington to break what turned out to be a tie when Republicans lost a yes vote from one of their own. With only a 51 to 49 hold on the Senate in the first place, Republicans can never afford to lose a single member of their own party when it comes to floor votes. And on most days lately, McConnell's lucky if he can get 45 Republican votes out of that 51. So even if only a couple of Republicans were to back the bill protecting Mueller's job, it's possible that the powerful Mitch McConnell wouldn't be able to stop it. People have generally not reacted well to the Democratic Party's lawsuit against the Trump campaign, WikiLeaks, and Russia, and that reaction is understandable. Criticisms range from the Democrats should stop focusing on the past and focus instead on now to Democrats have mostly themselves to blame for losing the 2016 election. But the chairman of the Democratic National Committee says punishing the defendants is the most effective way to keep them from again interfering with the U.S. election process. It should also be noted that a civil lawsuit, such as this one, can uncover materials that the various criminal investigations cannot. The Democrats are suing the Trump campaign, Russia, and WikiLeaks for illegally conspiring together to hurt Clinton and help Trump. The suit does not name Trump, but it names his son, Don Jr., and his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and his campaign manager, Paul Manafort. Among other things, the suit alleges computer fraud for the stealing of emails and the spreading of fake news on social media. For its basis, the lawsuit outlines much of what we all have already learned about the evidence since coverage of the investigation began. And there's something else you should know about Democrats suing Republican election campaigns. They win. The DNC brought a similar lawsuit against Richard Nixon's committee to reelect the president and won. They also won three quarters of a million dollars that they got to check on the day that Nixon left office. This time, they're asking for several million, citing the damage the Trump campaign, WikiLeaks, and Russia have done to the Democratic Party. Democrats have also been criticized for, quote, waiting two years to bring this lawsuit, even though it's taken this long to accumulate enough courtroom evidence to back up the lawsuit's very serious charges. Trump doesn't take the lawsuit seriously. In fact, he calls it so funny. As the Washington Post, Dana Milbank points out, it's not as funny as the time Trump sued comedian Bill Maher for challenging him to prove he was not mothered by an orangutan, or the times he has sued New Jersey, Scotland, a former Miss Pennsylvania, and the Pequot Indians, or the time he sued the Chicago Tribune because its architecture critic called Trump's plans for the world's tallest building silly, or the times he sued Palm Beach, once over a flagpole, the other over a noisy jet. Milbank reports Trump has even sued two guys named Trump for using that name on their businesses. It was in those Comey memos the Republicans demanded to be released that we learned that Trump had been upset about FBI Deputy Director Andrew McCabe from the very start. Trump had seen the right-wing attacks on McCabe, that McCabe was among those investigating Clinton's emails while McCabe's wife was running for a state Senate seat with some help from Clinton supporters. In his infamous meeting with Comey, Trump reportedly asked if McCabe had a problem with the president. Comey tried to assure the president that FBI agents and FBI officials pride themselves on being divorced from politics. Trump would bring up McCabe's name with Comey on at least two other occasions, Comey trying to assure Trump that McCabe is a pro 
but neither Trump nor the Republicans in Congress see it that way. The current inspector general in the Trump Sessions Justice Department has recommended that Andrew McCabe be considered for prosecution, accusing McCabe of leaking information. McCabe is also accused of lying to congressional investigators, a charge he denies. And he says he was authorized to leak that information. The inspector general has now referred that case to federal prosecutors, asking them to consider criminal charges against a deputy FBI director who was fired just hours before his retirement pension would kick in. McCabe's lawyers, supported by a half-million-dollar legal defense fund on the Internet, say they believe federal prosecutors will decide not to file those charges. But the lawyer says it's unfair his client McCabe should have to endure a criminal investigation. Iran's president is warning of grave consequences for the U.S. if Trump carries out his threat to scrap the Six-Nation Nuclear Agreement. Trump's threatened to scrap the Iran nuclear deal if it isn't fixed to his liking by May 12th. Iran's foreign minister says Trump will have to, quote, face the consequences if that happens. He says if Trump pulls out of the deal, Iran's considering getting back in the uranium enrichment business and even, quote, more drastic measures, including restarting Iran's nuclear weapons program. Trump responded by saying if that happens, quote, they're going to have big problems bigger than they've ever had before. During this week's visit by French President Emmanuel Macron, Macron did not succeed in convincing Trump to stay in the current nuclear deal with Iran, but to instead renegotiate it. People couldn't help but notice what appeared to be an unusual amount of physical contact between Trump and Macron during the visit, right down to Trump picking or pretending to pick a bit of dandruff from Emmanuel Macron's nice suit coat. There were a lot of extended handshakes, even hand-holding and hugs and even kisses on the cheek. Macron played along with all of it until he was freed from the White House to speak to the U.S. Congress. And that's when he gently hammered away at the nationalism of Trump's America First policies. If you ask me, said Macron, I do not share the fascination for new strong powers, the abandonment of freedom, or the illusion of nationalism. He got cheers and multiple standing ovations. Macron is also focused on trying to pull the U.S. and Europe back together. We know that during his visit, Macron not only tried to get Trump to find a way to stay in the Iran nuclear deal, but also to change his mind about pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord, since they are such good, good friends. Make our planet great again, Macron told Congress, adding, there is no planet B. A North Korea update. Does the White House ever vet its cabinet nominees? Nazis on the march? And a Bob Seska commentary after this. Here's that quick reminder to do your online shopping by using and bookmarking the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com. This production gets a small commission from Amazon when you do that, so it's very helpful to shop through that link for home, school, church, or office. Now, if you'd prefer not to use my Amazon link for any reason, please support this free newscast through the PayPal donate button just beneath the Amazon button at buzzburbank.com. And thank you. There's as much skepticism as there is optimism about North Korea's declaration it will stop nuclear testing and missile testing and even shut down one of its nuclear test sites. In truth, North Korea had stopped its testing four months ago. North Korea's made these commitments before and broken them. And this is another wedge to drive between the U.S. and its ally South Korea as the North and South set up their own hotline. 
Kim Jong-un had already stopped protesting the upcoming joint military exercises involving South Korea and the U.S. Trump administration officials say Kim's apparent concessions show that the sanctions against North Korea have worked and that they're a good sign for the upcoming talks between the two Koreas, between Kim and Trump. For what it's worth, the fire and fury, the war of words, has stopped. No more rocket man. In fact, the compliments have begun. It was the man Trump hopes will be his new Secretary of State who met face-to-face with Kim Jong-un over Easter weekend. Over that weekend, Kim said he was impressed with Mike Pompeo's guts that Pompeo reminded him of himself. On Tuesday, while refusing to explain his comment, Trump declared Kim to be, quote, very honorable. Trump knew his nomination of Pompeo to replace Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State was in trouble, and he was hoping that Pompeo's face-to-face with Kim Jong-un would help. In the end, Trump still had to do some coddling of Rand Paul, but it was still a close call and a close vote. Conventional wisdom said the president's pick would likely get confirmed by this Republican Congress, but there was concern in both parties about Pompeo's disdain for diplomacy, a Secretary of State's main job and about his war hawk approaches to both North Korea and Iran. There was also concern that Pompeo would, like others, serve only to please the president rather than stand up to the president with what's right for the country. In the end, however, the Republicans who control the Foreign Affairs Committee approved Mike Pompeo, who will now be confirmed today by the Senate at large. Trump may not have it as easy with his choice to replace Pompeo at the CIA, however, Gina Haspel. She ran a CIA black site where terror suspects who had been denied due process were tortured in violation of international law, and that concerns Democrats and Republicans, especially, of course, former war prisoner John McCain. Haspel oversaw the interrogations of a suspect who was waterboarded 83 times and had his head slammed into walls before the CIA realized he had nothing to contribute. Haspel also played a key role in the destruction of 92 videos of those torture incidents. 109 retired U.S. military admirals and generals have now signed a letter urging lawmakers to reject Haspel's nomination. She is supported by those who say she was just following orders. It isn't decided yet. Ask your senator if Haspel is right for you. And then there's Trump's choice to run the Veterans Administration. White House Dr. Ronnie Jackson. Jackson has no experience running any organization other than the White House Medical Office, where co-workers have since reported alcohol abuse, the overprescribing of drugs, and a hostile work environment. It was even once recommended Jackson be fired from his current job for his office battles with a rival. Navy Admiral Ronnie Jackson is the doc who declared that Trump's genetics are so good, Trump could live to be 200 years old if he just ate better. Jackson may be referring to Trump's love of McDonald's hamburgers and Kentucky Fried Chicken. But since the world's oldest person has just died at age 117, it is hardly within the realm of medical possibility that anyone else would live to be 200, especially Trump. But Ronnie Jackson was handy and was Trump's top choice to run the second biggest part of the federal government, one that has a budget of nearly $200 billion and about 350,000 employees. The hearing on Ronnie Jackson's nomination, which was to have been yesterday, was delayed. And this morning, he withdrew from that nomination, calling the charges against him false. There have been a series of credible allegations from nearly two dozen past and present military who say Jackson was known as the Candyman for handing out so many drugs, including opioids, Percocet specifically. 
that he had a violent and hair-trigger temper, that he drank excessively, passing out while on duty in one instance and in another, wrecking a government vehicle while drunk. After putting Jackson through all of this, Trump said Monday if he were Jackson, he would withdraw, since the questions he's about to face are, in Trump's words, disgusting. If I was him, said Trump, I wouldn't do it. Jackson's now taken that advice, and the search for a new VA director begins. Trump's first VA secretary had just resigned in disgrace, and neither he nor the White House bothered to properly vet this one. Democrats say Trump's sloppy, slapdash approach to leading the Veterans Administration shows a true disrespect for our veterans. Trump's EPA director, Scott Pruitt, meanwhile, faces an all-day grilling today from Congress about his lavish spending at taxpayer expense outlined by this broadcast and elsewhere in lengthy detail. The man already confirmed as Trump's housing secretary has proposed raising the rent on nearly 5 million low-income families living in public housing. Ben Carson wants those who get subsidies to get jobs if they want to keep those subsidies. That's already required in a dozen states and in cities, including Atlanta, Charlotte, and Chicago. Tenants already pay 30% of their income for that housing. Carson wants it to be 35%. Tenants would also lose their deduction for child care. What is now a $50 cap on rent for the poorest families would become a $150 cap. Carson's plan would have to be approved by Congress before going into effect. Salon.com's Bob Seska has breaking news about the president's unsecured cell phone as Bob vents about a rise in politicians he calls Trump copycats. We're all ears, Bob. Thank you, Buzz. One of the many supremely stressful aspects of the Trump era is the very real danger that President Trump's style of erratic, racist, bullying, misinformed politics will continue beyond Trump, further eroding institutions and obliterating the functioning of government as we know it. Specifically, I'm most concerned about Trump's copycats continuing to perfect that fact-free gibberish he's made so famous and, in some cases, doing it better than Trump. As seen this week in a New York Times profile, they're popping up like orange weeds and red hats, mimicking Trump's catchphrases and his abandonment of decency insofar as politics is tempered by collegiality and decorum to an extent. There's one guy named Don Blankenship who's running for U.S. Senate out of West Virginia. His first big ad buy includes a commercial in which he calls for locking up Hillary Clinton. The stupefying ridiculousness of continuing to pursue a grandma who's not even active in public service or electoral politics anymore goes without saying. But there he is, running on an investigate Hillary platform two years after the 2016 elections wrapped up. Worse, you might remember Blankenship's name from the Upper Big Branch coal mine disaster in which 38 men were buried alive. Blankenship ended up serving a year in prison for his part in the disaster, namely for deliberately violating mining safety laws. Now he's got a 50-50 shot at being the GOP's nominee for U.S. Senate from West Virginia. It's staggering. Once again, there's a sickness, a cultural rot in the red areas of the nation. The fact that Blankenship could very well win his primary and go on to defeat Democratic Senator Joe Manchin is a gigantic symptom of that sickness aided by his Trumpian persona. This sanctimonious criminal who's responsible for the worst mining disaster in 40 years has the nerve to attack Hillary as some sort of crook for not killing miners, but for having a personal email server in her house. Gasp. 
Anyone, including Mr. Blankenship, who's still repeating lock her up, can feel free to jump off a cliff. That includes the president, who continues to threaten his political opponents, including Hillary and including journalists, with imprisonment or worse. Speaking of Trump, I'm not sure how any Trumper can look themselves in the mirror when bitching about Hillary's email server while simultaneously ignoring the fact that the president himself is somehow still using his personal Android phone to make calls and presumably to drop his tweets into your Twitter feed. Bear in mind that President Obama also used a personal device, but it was augmented with increased security measures. There's nothing to indicate Trump's phone is likewise secured. Indeed, his sole reason for using it is privacy, he thinks. Namely, the president doesn't want his chief of staff, John Kelly, knowing who he's calling and how often. Now, if Kelly really wanted to know who Trump was talking to, he might be able to ask Mike Rogers, the head of the National Security Agency, because chances are the NSA is keeping track of who Trump's calling. The FBI, too. But that's the least of Trump's problems here. It's even more likely that Russia, China, Iran, Syria, North Korea, and maybe Pakistan are all listening to Trump's calls, too, while also intercepting any other bits of information transmitted from Trump's damn phone. All told, Trump's phone usage is far worse than anything Hillary did or didn't do with her homebrew server, especially considering that he's the president now, while at the apex of her career, Hillary was several rungs down that ladder. We also know that Trump was compromised before he even slithered into the executive mansion. And we know that many of Trump's closest advisors were even more compromised. Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort, especially, with Jared Kushner as a very likely possibility. And now year two Trump is blabbing away on an unsecured phone, still to this day, giving our enemies and allies alike countless hints about how best to manipulate the presidency, while bonus nabbing some top secret information along the way. Trump's loose lips aren't just for Lavrov and Kislyak in the Oval Office anymore. Hackers of all varieties, state-sponsored or freelance, have an easily accessible window into Trump's private conversations. The Trump administration is literally giving away American national security secrets, and no one seems to give a rip. It's not that difficult for the Secret Service to provide Trump with an encrypted device. Clearly, though, Trump thinks he's above the law and beyond reproach. He's neither, of course, but as long as his disciples are looking the other way, he can get away with murder. I've been repeating this since the summer of 2016, that Trump is a threat to national security, and not just because of Russia. Trump is so easily pegged and so easily puppeteered. He's so careless with the responsibilities of the presidency, he's basically opened the door to the Oval Office to any black hat who wants to burrow into the Resolute desk and hunker down for some unprecedented access to American secrets of all varieties. And we don't even know the full extent of the infiltration, and we're 100% certain to never find out. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of him at Salon.com and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at RealmNetwork.com. Join me with him there every Tuesday. The Trump Sessions Justice Department continues to lose its battles over cutting off police funding to sanctuary cities. Sanctuary cities have policies against complying with federal deportation orders, arguing that those deportations do more harm than good in their communities. New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, Dallas, Denver, L.A., and San Francisco are among those cities. Lower courts had already slapped an injunction on the Trump policy of punishing sanctuary cities. Now a federal appeals court has upheld that injunction. It was not a liberal appeals court. Its judges were appointed by Ford, Reagan, and George H.W. Bush.
It was also a Bush-appointed federal judge who ordered the Trump administration to restart the DACA program for immigrants who were brought here as children. Also known as Dreamers, DACA protected these younger immigrants from deportation. Trump tried to kill protection for Dreamers with an executive order. But Tuesday night, a third federal judge ordered the Trump government to restart the DACA program and to start taking new applicants again. The judge called Trump's orders arbitrary, capricious, and virtually unexplained. Trump's Justice Department says the DACA executive order signed by Obama is illegal, but the Trump administration hasn't said why or how that Obama order is illegal. The judge is giving the administration 90 days to explain or DACA returns. The U.S. Supreme Court, meanwhile, has been considering the arguments it heard yesterday for and against keeping Trump's so-called travel ban. Because that ban includes a half dozen mostly Muslim countries and because it's effectively the Muslim ban Trump promised in the campaign, critics are calling it unconstitutional. Lower courts have mostly agreed, citing Trump's own words. That counts for something. And because a couple of courts have upheld Trump's ban, it's now before the nation's highest court. The Trump administration argues it's not a Muslim ban because it now also includes North Korea and a few guys in Venezuela. The U.S. Supreme Court will now decide who's right, and it's looking good for Trump's ban. Based on the questions they were asked yesterday and the answers they heard, it appears the conservative majority is ready to uphold Trump's ban, which is the third version put forth by this administration. But Trump's lost three other federal court cases this week, two of them in appeals courts. This time, it was over the Trump administration plan to delay penalties on car makers who don't meet new fuel efficiency standards. Trump's transportation department made the delay indefinite. Various states and environmental groups sued the administration over that order, saying the penalties were necessary to protect the air, the planet, and our wallets. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals ruled the Trump order cannot be indefinite. Delaying the penalties is just one part of the Trump plan to roll back climate and environmental regulations set by the Obama administration. Also on the Trump agenda, lowering the air quality standards. Nearly 40% of U.S. citizens already live in polluted air. Speaking for the states, New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman said, we'll take them to court and we'll win. The Delaware Senate has just passed a bill to let police seize weapons from those considered to be a danger to themselves or others. That bill was named for the late son of Delaware's Joe Biden, Bo Biden. As they vowed they would do, students at 3,000 schools in the U.S. reminded us of their ongoing determination to get better gun control laws. Students walked out at 10 a.m. on Friday on the 19th anniversary of the Columbine Massacre to give at least a moment of silence for those who died there and at Sandy Hook and Virginia Tech and this year at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. They set up an arrangement of 13 empty desks at a high school in Weston, Florida to commemorate the 13 Columbine victims. In D.C., they read the names of gun violence victims out loud. They chanted, Our blood, your hands, and enough is enough. Elsewhere, students chanted, Hey, hey, NRA, how many kids did you kill today? Students in New York City took part in a die-in. A 10-year-old girl at an elementary school in Pennsylvania was the only student to walk out of class at her school at 10 a.m. on Friday telling her mother, Mommy, this was too important to be embarrassed. Actors Robert De Niro and Julianne Moore had written excused absence letters for students who were reluctant to leave class. The mayor of Newark, New Jersey, addressed one gathering of students with, 
the adults in office don't have the kind of commitment or capacity to solve these problems. So it's going to take you to pull those people out of the White House and Congress. Students in Colorado, many of whom will soon vote themselves, were helping their peers and others register to vote. Quoting a 17-year-old, a politician only fears one thing, your vote. These young Americans have not stopped and they show no sign of stopping. They are supported in many cases by their parents and teachers. One of the big teacher unions, the American Federation of Teachers, has just announced it's ending its relationship with Wells Fargo Bank over the bank's ties to gunmakers and the NRA. Wells Fargo, meanwhile, isn't likely to give up that sweet NRA money, especially since the gun group has just set a new monthly record for political donations. The NRA's political arm raised nearly $2.5 million last month, the vast majority of donations at $200 or less. Lately, the teachers have also been walking out. The latest today in Arizona, again over the low spending priority dedicated to them and the vital work that they do. Low pay and cuts in school funding in general were the motives for many of these walkouts in West Virginia, Oklahoma, Kentucky, and most recently, Arizona. Red states, every single one of them. In Arizona, lawmakers had cut about $1 billion from the schools after the 2008 recession. The economy has since recovered, and it's now 10 years later. These statewide teacher strikes have been mostly successful, and with a 9% raise next year, rising to 20% by 2020, Arizona has now become another success story. Or at least it's a start. Teachers are on the march today in Colorado as well. Speaking again of Wells Fargo Bank, the Trump administration, which is busy dismantling government regulations, has just surprised everyone by fining Wells Fargo roughly $1 billion, the biggest fine of its kind ever. Wells Fargo had admitted two years ago that for years before that, it opened millions of unwanted, unknown, unsolicited bank accounts and assigned car insurance policies to its car loans. In some cases, people saw their cars repossessed because they hadn't paid the premium for the insurance they didn't know they had. One of the agencies issuing some of the fines is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau that Trump and his Treasury Secretary have been working to dismantle. Oh, and about that Trump-Publican tax cut. A joint committee of Congress, the Committee on Taxation, did a study and found what's already been reported that the new tax law mostly benefits the wealthy. It has to do with the deductions the wealthy can take for what's known as pass-through businesses. Pass-through businesses don't pay corporate tax. Instead, the divided profits are taxed as personal income for the individual partners in that business. That, by the way, is how about 95% of American businesses operate. This congressional study found that the biggest chunk of tax savings, 44%, goes to people making over a million dollars a year. And that savings will be covered by the other taxpayers to the tune of more than $40 billion just in this first year. I hadn't planned on covering the latest Gallup poll until I saw and heard the public's reaction to it. Trump supporters tweeted excitedly about Gallup's finding that Trump's chances for re-election going into this year's midterm elections are about the same as they were for both Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Trump critics were also tweeting about the poll, worried that since that number got Clinton and Obama re-elected, it might bring Trump the same results. A Washington Post analysis says not necessarily. Both Obama and Clinton suffered big midterm defeats, as nearly all presidents do, as this one is about to do. The difference with Trump is his approval numbers 
are much, much lower. Even if you don't believe the polls, there were not marches and rallies and town halls about Clinton and Obama as there are in the era of Trump and the resistance. The polls also show it to be widely accepted that Trump is a compulsive liar who doesn't deserve to be elected. Trump could lose at least one House of Congress, maybe two, and lose himself in a re-election bid with these record-breaking low approval numbers. The blue wave continued in a couple of congressional special elections on Tuesday, even though Democrats did not win in Arizona. Since the start of the Trump era, 40 districts across the country have flipped from red to blue. In New York this week, Democrats won back that 40th seat in a very red district. It was the first time a Dem had won that particular seat in over 30 years. In Arizona, a Republican won the special election there, but that doesn't mean the blue wave had weakened. Trump had won that always red Arizona district by 21 points. Republican Debbie Lesko won it Tuesday by just five points, less than a fourth the lead that Trump had enjoyed in that district. Republicans had to spend a lot of money just to keep that seat and yet still lost support in every precinct in that district. Democrats now need 23 seats to win back the House in Washington. Coincidentally, 23 is also the number of Republicans running for re-election in districts where Trump lost in 2016. Democrats are now running candidates in districts they had given up on as being unchangeably Republican. Last month, a Democratic candidate flipped a district in Pennsylvania that Trump had won by 20 points. And despite their own victories, it is a fact that Republicans have lost support in every special election since Trump became president. Observers now say Democrats are not only likely to win back the House this fall, but apparently also the Senate. This is not a repeat from 1935. In Germany, Jews are currently being warned by a rabbi not to wear their yarmulkes in public in the major cities. Two men wearing the caps were assaulted in Berlin, whipped with a belt by three men who were shouting the Arabic word for Jew. The head of the Central Council of Jews in Germany, Joseph Schuster, is warning fellow Jews to either not wear the kippah in public or to, quote, wear a baseball cap or something else instead. Schuster says German society is at a tipping point and that society has to fight anti-Semitism as a danger to German democracy. Then, says Schuster, Jews in Germany can, quote, be visible in public again. When the Under Armour company found out that its ads were appearing on a YouTube channel for Nazis... It stopped advertising on YouTube altogether and picked up the phone to call CNN. CNN conducted an investigation and found that all kinds of big companies' ads were showing up on YouTube channels dedicated to white nationalists, pedophiles, conspiracy theorists, and those spreading North Korean propaganda. And until CNN notified Adidas, Amazon, Cisco, Hershey, Hilton, LinkedIn, Netflix, and Nordstrom those companies say they did not know their ads were being used in this way. But none of this is news to YouTube, which has already had to pull companies' ads from Alex Jones' InfoWars channel. This has been happening for years now. It's been three years since ads for major companies were popping up on ISIS videos. Quoting one e-marketer, If brands want to make sure this stops, the only way is for them to stop spending on YouTube until it's fixed. YouTube says it's working on the problem but has not explained why, years into this, ads keep appearing where the advertiser doesn't want them. 
On one Nazi channel, former Ku Klux Klan Grand Wizard David Duke talked about the genetic differences he believes exist between blacks and whites. The video carried ads for the Nissan Leaf and Disney's movie A Wrinkle in Time. An ad by Toy Makers ran on a channel that promotes pedophilia. Anti-Semitic is just one of the features of just one of the videos from the Theta Tau frat house at Syracuse University. The first video is also described as racist and homophobic. F black people is part of the pledge, along with a racial slur for Hispanics. I solemnly swear, a pledge repeats, to always have hatred in my heart for, followed by several slurs for African Americans and Jews. Other videos reportedly feature the mocking of women, gays, and people with disabilities. A second video now public shows the frat boys taunting one of its members who's seated in an office chair that has wheels. Three other members then surround him and pretend to be forcing him to perform oral sex. One says he's drooling out of his mouth because he's retarded on a wheelchair. The first video had appeared on the local fraternity's private Facebook page. The same day as this revelation, the Syracuse chapter of Theta Tau was suspended and condemned by the school's president. Noonan, Georgia is a town of about 33,000 people just southwest of Atlanta, and that is where the Nazis marched through town on Saturday. Members from one of the biggest neo-Nazi groups in the U.S., the National Socialist Movement, turned out with their Confederate flags and uniform patches in Noonan on Saturday. But there weren't many people around to see it. The Nazis were not welcome in Noonan, Georgia. Fearing the kind of violence they'd witnessed during a Nazi march in Charlottesville, city officials in Noonan asked businesses to store indoors anything that could be thrown, signs, tables, and chairs, for example. The stores in downtown Noonan took it even further, announcing they would be closed on Saturday, their most profitable day of the week. And then all the people of Noonan stepped up. Shoppers declared they'll shop downtown on Friday to help their friends and those local businesses make up for the losses they would endure on Saturday. Businesses responded by announcing they'd stay open later on Friday to better accept that help. They hired musicians and arranged some 5K races and gave away t-shirts that read, We Are Noonan Strong. A community art center let kids cover the sidewalk throughout the city park with colorful chalk drawings of hearts and rainbows and flowers. Quoting the head of that center, It'll be hard for that hate group to take serious video footage when a rainbow-colored unicorn is in the shot. During the Nazi march in Noonan, Georgia, people gathered in a local church for an interfaith service promoting harmony. Eat your vegetables, but not the romaine. NASA, it's not rocket science anymore. And the planet with the embarrassing name in the third and final segment up next. Listening is the new reading. And Audible.com is your best online audio bookstore with the biggest selection of audiobooks. Bestsellers like Fire and Fury, Russian Roulette, and of course, James Comey's A Higher Loyalty. You don't even need an internet connection to listen, so you can listen anywhere. And you won't lose your place even if you switch devices. There's no equipment to buy, just download the free app. Because Audible.com is an Amazon company, you can count on privacy, security, and satisfaction. You can sign on securely with your Amazon account. And if you don't like a book, you can exchange it for another free. As a member, you'll get a credit every month for a free book, any book, regardless of price, and exclusive to members' discounts of 30%. Membership is just $14.95 a month. You get a whole library for about what you'd pay for a single book. And you can cancel any time and keep your books. 
Even if you shop Amazon elsewhere, this podcast gets a small commission if you join Audible through the link at buzzburbank.com. Just click the Audible link on my webpage just below the list of my recent shows. Thank you for choosing Audible through me and for supporting this free news through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. NASA is one of several government agencies inexorably tied to science. Scientists make major contributions to our space program, and in return, it makes major contributions to science. Trump's new head of NASA has virtually no experience in science. He ran the Air and Space Museum in Tulsa as an administrator. After a six-month confirmation process, Oklahoma Republican Congressman Jim Bridenstine is now the nation's top rocket scientist. He was confirmed by a one-vote margin. Earth Day came and went this year with a message from the president underscoring the importance of, and I quote, a strong market-driven economy. That, said Trump, is how you protect our air, land, and water. And for this reason, said Trump on Earth Day, my administration is dedicated to removing unnecessary and harmful regulations that restrain economic growth. Already we are making progress, he said. Indeed he is. This month, his embattled Environmental Protection Agency chief announced plans to roll back Obama-era fuel efficiency standards. Earlier, the administration eased clean water regulations and announced a pullout from the Paris Climate Accord, as well as opening up land and sea for new oil exploration, bolstering the fossil fuel industries that feed climate change. Happy Earth Day 2018. The rest of us are still wasting too much food, maybe more so lately, as more of us focus on fresh, healthy fruits and vegetables. Those are precisely the foods that are wasted the most, according to a professor at the University of Vermont. Her study shows that nearly 150,000 tons of food gets thrown away every day. That's about a pound per person per day, nearly one-third of all the produce we buy, trashed. We're also wasting time, money, land, and other resources in the process. 30 million acres of cropland, over 4 trillion gallons of water, nearly 2 billion pounds of fertilizer, and nearly a billion pounds of pesticides went into producing the food that we throw away. Dairy is the second most wasted food, followed by meat. Experts say we need to teach ourselves better ways to cook, better ways to store foods to keep them from going bad. And they say we need to learn there is a difference between a bruise and actual spoilage, that we should cook that ugly carrot or gnarly eggplant instead of throwing it away. Except for the romaine lettuce. We're still being advised not to eat any romaine. Do not eat it in your home. Do not eat it in a restaurant. Do not eat it chopped. Do not eat it whole. Do not even eat the hearts. If you have some, throw it away. We're wasting this food because some of it is dangerously contaminated with E. coli bacteria. So unless you know for a fact the romaine is not from the Yuma, Arizona area, it's all considered risky. E. coli has already made 84 people sick in 19 states. Over three dozen people were hospitalized with kidney failure. The hardest hit states so far are Pennsylvania, Idaho, and Alaska. When it comes to diet sodas versus sodas sweetened with real sugar, Choose your poison. Counting calories this way might not help at all, according to a new study from Marquette University and the Medical College of Wisconsin. Their researchers found that, like sugar, artificial sweeteners can also cause obesity and diabetes. The study found it doesn't matter which artificial sweetener. 
Lab rats on three weeks of artificial sweetener had the same levels of biochemicals and fats in their blood as the rats who had spent three weeks consuming regular sugar. Researchers say the answer is moderation. Don't have too much of either. Ford says it's mostly getting out of the car business, eliminating all but two sedans by 2020, leaving it exclusively in the SUV and truck business. Ford says that's where the money is. The remaining sedans will be the Mustang and a wagon version of the Focus, but Focus itself, as well as Fusion and all the other Ford sedans, will vanish from the assembly lines. We ignore the airline safety videos and the attendance pre-flight instructions because we've heard it before, perhaps many times, and we already know all that stuff. But we don't. Cell phone pics taken during the recent crisis on Southwest Flight 1380 showed numerous passengers wearing their oxygen masks over their mouths. That's not how it's done. That's not what was in the video, and that's not what the flight attendant said before takeoff. The mask goes over your mouth and your nose. Place it firmly over your nose and mouth, just like in the script we thought we knew by heart. Flight attendants say they've noticed that most passengers are looking somewhere else when the safety instructions are explained on every single flight. A Colorado woman returning from France had to pay a $500 fine at the Denver airport. It was for sneaking an apple through customs. Not a computer, an apple. Crystal Tadlock wasn't trying to smuggle in an apple that could endanger American crops. Delta Airlines had handed them out on the flight, and Crystal simply saved hers for later, stuffing it into her purse. Delta has washed its hands of this, saying the apple was meant to be eaten before landing. Ms. Tadlock says nobody warned passengers not to take the fruit through customs. The offending fruit was still wrapped in a Delta Airlines label when customs agents inquired about it and seized it. He asked if my trip to France was expensive, and I said, yeah. I didn't really get why he was asking. And then he said, it's about to get a lot more expensive after I charge you $500. Says Ms. Tadlock, it's really unfortunate someone has to go through that and be treated like a criminal over a piece of fruit. It appears the Trump administration is backing off its plans to crack down on marijuana users. In making a deal with Republican Colorado Senator Cory Gardner recently, Trump promised to not only leave Colorado alone, but according to Gardner, quote, support a legislative solution that would let each state decide its own marijuana policy. Pot remains illegal at the federal level, even with recreational weed legal in eight states and in Washington, D.C. itself. And it appears Democrats are finally taking up this cause. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has become the first person ever in that position to publicly approve of taking marijuana off the federal list of Scheduled One controlled substances. As it stands, marijuana is still in the same federal category as cocaine and heroin. In Illinois, meanwhile, yet another person has died from using the legal synthetic marijuana. The rat poison they put in K2 and spice is apparently not good for you, having sickened more than 130 people just in Illinois. When it comes to real weed, too much of it is the problem in Oregon. Cannabis farmer Trey Willison of Eugene, Oregon, saw this coming nearly a year ago. He'd been selling his cloned plants to other growers. Quoting Willison, you start doing the math on that, and it just didn't make sense how people could be growing that many plants. State officials report an inventory of over one million pounds of usable, unsold marijuana. 
It's a supply and demand market, however. The dispensaries are also well-stocked and now selling marijuana for 4 bucks a gram. That's less than half the cost of the cheap stuff in Seattle and Denver, where it's also legal. Quoting the head of the Oregon Cannabis Association, every agricultural crop has its highs and lows, no pun intended. A Quiet Place has regained its top spot on the list of North America's current favorite theatrical movies. The nearly speechless movie made another $22 million this week for a total of $132 million, $283 million worldwide. It cost Paramount only $17 million to make. Last week's number one, Rampage, slipped to second place with $21 million. Amy Schumer, not the box office draw we would hope. Her I Feel Pretty opened at just $16 million. Super Troopers 2 was fourth with just under $15 million, meaning there won't likely be a Super Troopers 3. Austin Powers actor Vern Troyer was among this week's passings. Troyer, who's best known for playing Mini-Me in the Mike Myers movies, struggled with depression and alcoholism. He's gone now at the age of 49 in an apparent suicide. Grammy-nominated DJ Avicii has died at 28. Born Tim Bergling, Avicii was also a heavy drinker and had suffered acute pancreatitis, forcing the removal of his gallbladder and his appendix four years ago. He canceled part of his busy touring schedule to try to recover. Avicii was an international pop star performing sold-out concerts around the world while collaborating with groups including Coldplay. Avicii's biggest hit was Wake Me Up. Bob Duro was working as a jazz singer and pianist in New York when an ad agency friend said his young sons were having trouble with their multiplication tables. The friend asked Bob if he could write a tune that would help them remember. So Bob wrote the song, Three is a Magic Number. Perhaps you remember it if you watch those short schoolhouse rock cartoons Saturday mornings on ABC in the late 70s and 80s and then again in the 90s in which case you also remember Conjunction Junction and I'm Just a Bill. You liked it. You sang along and you sang it later, and you learned about math and grammar and government. Bob Duro has passed at 94, while millions continue to watch and re-watch his work on YouTube. I'm not entirely comfortable with saying this, but Uranus stinks. Among the scientific discoveries this week about the seventh planet from the sun, Uranus, as it is apparently correctly pronounced, has a lot of hydrogen sulfide in its atmosphere. Its air smells like sulfur, to put it politely. It smells like rotten eggs, or worse. We now know this from the Voyager 2 spacecraft. After decades of study, this sulfur gas is what scientists expected to find, but thanks to Voyager 2, we now know for certain and how very much of it there is. Quoting Oxford physicist Patrick Irwin, if an unfortunate human were ever to descend through Uranus's clouds, they should be met with very unpleasant and odiferous conditions. So feel free to tell your friends, Uranus stinks. Pronounce it however you feel appropriate. Criminal Minds. Be careful where you get your Disneyland tickets. A Wells Cargo trailer with 8,000 Disneyland admission tickets inside has been stolen from the state's future Farmers of America, and the California Highway Patrol is investigating. The trailer had been loaded with stuff for an FFA leadership conference in SoCal. Disney has since digitally canceled the tickets so they won't be honored, which is why you should be wary of third-party sellers. And it's not very often you'll hear a story involving the chips, a Wells Cargo trailer, Disneyland, and the future Farmers of America. So there it is. 
You may remember this guy from a story last year. Gilberto Escamina was arrested for and had confessed to stealing more than one million taxpayer dollars worth of fajitas, which he then sold for profit. Escamilla handled food deliveries at a state juvenile detention center. He got caught when one of his deliveries arrived while he was at a doctor's appointment. As Escamilla said himself in court, it started small and got bigger. It got to the point I couldn't control it anymore. A man in Houston, Texas, did what he does every morning at 7 a.m. He pulled his car into the usual spot across from work, handed his keys to the valet, got his ticket, and crossed the street to start his day. On Monday morning of this week, when this working man pulled in, it wasn't the usual attendant. It was another guy. He seemed to know where everything was and how it all worked, but he wasn't a valet. He was a car thief. When the car's owner returned after work, his Toyota Camry was gone, and so was the thief, of course. Security video rewound shows the thief had been standing around the corner for a while learning how this valet service worked and grabbed his opportunity when the real attendant left for a restroom break. Police have that security tape and are still looking for the man who is not your valet. If you harbor some feeling that perhaps you're not really a good person, you probably think this sign is about you. Tuesday afternoon on Interstate 5, south of Seattle, exit 154B in Jovito, Washington, there was one of those electronic portable highway signs with the message, You suck. The state transportation department fixed it, has apologized, and says it's taking steps to keep this from happening again. What they're calling an inappropriate message is being blamed on what they're calling a training error. Apparently the training wasn't going so well. So it's not you. And finally, Dylan McWilliams of Grand Junction, Colorado, has again been attacked by an animal. This happens to Dylan a lot. Dylan was surfing off the coast of Kauai on vacation a week ago today when he was bitten on the leg by a shark. I saw a lot of blood, he says, and I saw a shark underneath me. I started kicking it. The scariest part, says Dylan, was swimming back. There was blood behind me, he recalls. I don't know where he was. But Dylan McWilliams is a pro. He's already survived an attack by a bear last summer while he was working as a survival instructor. The bear bit Dylan's head. When it pulled, he says, it tore the skin and scraped along my skull, which was like a crackling noise. But by then, Dylan had already survived the fangs of a poisonous rattlesnake. It didn't give me much venom, says Dylan, but I got a little bit to make me sick. Dylan says the late Steve Irwin is or was his hero. Dylan McWilliams wrapped up his stories by saying, I was in the wrong spot at the wrong time. But from all appearances, animals don't like you, Dylan. They don't like you at all. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for listening and for supporting my sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comment. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.